Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We are podcasting once again from Flatbread Pizza here in uh, South Windsor, Connecticut. And uh, we're glad to have you with us. And uh, the, the team is all here. The band has been reunited. Anyway, we've actually been reunited for a couple weeks. But uh, Glenn is getting ready to go away, by the way. And you ought to tell us a little bit about your your next adventure here when you when you introduce yourself, Glenn. But anyway, uh, Tom, why don't you get us started? Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon well, God, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Yeah, you can Can't tell that we're, on our, today. Yeah, we're on our third dr- <laughs> right. our third pint all the way around. That's right. <laughs> Not really. But. <laughs> and I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson. Center for Christian Worldview. And as Chris said, I am going to be leaving in a couple of days for a trip to Sierra Leone, where I will be, we got some family things going on there, but mostly I'm going to be there um, working with an absolutely fabulous organization called New Generations. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, excuse me, New Harvest. But anyway, this is this, <laughs> they're, they're fabulous. Some, they're some, great. Sometime, yeah, I, I've got I've got two different groups that work together. One's New Generation, one's New Harvest. But this is and New we're Harvest. only on our first drink. And, we're just <laughs> that's our story, and we're sticking to it. Um, several shows ago, we had uh, right. a man by the name of Francis with us. Francis is from New Harvest, and so I'm going to go there. I'm going to be doing some teaching at a college that they've got. And um, doing more observation in the ministry and seeing uh, what other ways I can contribute there. But I'll be back in a week, and we're getting, we've got shows stockpiled, so yeah. I shouldn't be missing anything. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we uh, actually won't be we won't be uh, uh, posting this show probably until you're already back. Most likely, that's right. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. Now, we got a fun show for you today. <laughs> this is uh, one of those freaky shows that we like to throw at our audience every once in a while. And Glenn told us about an interest of his, in fact, uh, a course that he once taught. And we said, we got to do a show on that. So what are we talking about, Glenn? Vampires. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Vampires. Okay, okay. Yeah. So there was <laughs> a, uh, a Facebook post on a, a New England vampire scare. And I commented in passing that I actually used to teach a course on called Witches, Werewolves, and Vampires. All right. Superstition in Popular Religion. And I said the last couple of times I'd offered it, I didn't get enough students to actually run it. So that it's now. me. See, that yeah. would have been first on my list as That's a right. student. That's I, right. Even I, today. You know, I thought so too. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but somehow I didn't get enough, so it's on the bone pile. And... Hmm. Um, Probably not the best analogy, but but in, in any event, someone told me that uh, yeah, you should do a podcast on it. So we're doing a podcast on vampires now. Now, we, so we're talking about vampires, we're talking about werewolves, and what's the third category? Witches. Witches. Ah. Okay. Now, now you and I were talking a little bit about you know uh, how people use vampires and and. Was it zombies? Vampires and zombies, yeah. To talk about politics. Yeah. There's, there's uh, somebody that made the observation that when the Democrats are in power, you tend to have a lot of zombie movies. Uh-huh. And when Republicans are in power, vampires are in. 
But and the, the idea here is that the vampires represent sort of the aristocracy and things yeah, like that, which yeah. you associate with the Republicans, and the zombies are the mindless masses that you associate <laughs> with the Democrats. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, though, uh, I've actually come across this sort of thing before, and the thing I heard was that when, you know, you, you, you sort of connect the, these things, the political parties in the United States with, the, with, with these things, vampires and werewolves were, were the things I have been told relate to vampires, the Democratic Party, and werewolves, the Republican Party. Interesting. Yeah, but it wasn't about the movies. It was just sort of like, you know, the, kind of the personification the blood-sucking Democrat. <laughs> yes, that leads to the American Werewolf in London. Right? <laughs> a great movie. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we're having a little fun here, and uh, so so let's get into it. All right. Well, let's start with New England vampires, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do these in reverse chronological order. Most recent, going back. Okay. Okay. So the most recent example we have of a vampire scare in New England involved a woman by the name of Mercy Lena Brown. What a name. Uh, she died in 1892. And when she died, there were a number of deaths that had occurred just prior to this, uh, along with illnesses. Huh. And for one reason or another, she was assumed to be responsible for this. Okay. So her body was exhumed. Hmm. Her heart was cut out and burned. Wow. The ashes were put in water and given to her brother, who was the one who was ill, in an effort to cure him. Hmm. As it turns out, he still ended up dying. Okay. Now, the story about Marcelina Brown was reported far and wide. Uh, the American anthropologist wrote it up. It showed up in the London Post. It showed up in the Boston Globe. Wow. And it influenced an author we have talked about before. Lovecraft? H.P. Lovecraft. Wow, wow. A, a story called The Shunned House. Okay, okay. Was influenced by Marcelina Brown. Now, now, where was she from? What part of New England? Um, you know, I don't actually have that in my notes. Yeah, um, well, I think it's Massachusetts, but I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it wouldn't surprise me if she was from Connecticut. Well, <laughs> actually, actually, we have multiple <laughs> Connecticut vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, the thing about it is New England has got to be the creepiest part of the country. Yeah, it I mean, is. Even, the, even the Brits think New England is a creepy place. Yeah. And I see vampires daily, but that's another day, another So moving back from Mercy Lena Brown, we get the Jewett City Vampires of 1854. Okay. Um, five members of the Ray family were accused of being vampires. And we'll talk about why this is in a bit. Um, they ended up exhuming the bodies, and then they did what's called a bone disruption which is where you take the bones and you rearrange them so that they are no longer in their proper relationship to each other. Mm. The idea being that if you take, for example, the shins and stick them up in the chest, it's going to be really hard for the guy to get up. <laughs> um, I like the logic. I like the logic. Then, then, it, then um, a bunch of children, also in Connecticut, in Griswold, a bunch of, of kids playing in an uh, a old um, quarry, gravel quarry, basically, Uncovered some human bones, mm -hmm. and they grizzly in Griswold. Well, what what it, they, so they called the police. They figured out these were old. They called the state archaeologists, and he showed up and did an excavation. It turns out it had been a graveyard, and what they they uncovered as they were uh, excavating this, no, nobody had realized there had been a cemetery there. <laughs> they found one grave labeled JB fifty five. 
who hmm. that was a bone destruction. Again, the bones were, were moved in, in different places. And they figure once again that this was someone who is suspected of being a vampire. Um, moving further back, 1817 in Woodstock, Vermont, someone was accused... Oh, no, I'm looking at land in Woodstock. I can't go there now. <laughs> well, someone was accused of... You know, they, there was a suspicion that someone was a vampire. They were dug up and their heart was burned. Wow. You know, that's where Joseph Smith is from originally, I believe, is that mm -hmm. area. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, they missed him. Yeah. <laughs> and then pushing back into the 18th century, in Manchester, Vermont, there was another case where there was a suspected vampire outbreak, and a person who was presumed guilty was dug up, the heart was, and the heart was burned. This time, it was burned ex ex explicitly to, quote, demon vampire. Huh. Okay, huh. so we have all of these things. Right. What's causing them? Vampires? What? Well, <laughs> that, that, that was what they thought. Actually, this is where things get really interesting historically. And, you know, the, all of this was part of a, uh, not only the class, but I did a presentation called Vampires Before Dracula. Oh. Well, that's, uh, I have a question when we yeah, get to that yeah. part. Yeah. Because it yeah. turns out that, that Bram Stoker with Dracula completely changes the concept of vampires. Okay, this is, a, this is good to know. At, at this particular point... News you can use. Yes. yes. At this particular point in time, <laughs> vampires were associated more with illness than with anything like you know, blood-sucking or whatever. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, they were connected to tuberculosis. Huh. When there was an outbreak of tuberculosis, well, the, my dad always used to call tuberculosis consumption. Right. Yeah. It was a disease that consumed you. Mm -hmm. And outbreaks of tuberculosis were frequently associated with vampires because the person's life force right. was being consumed. consumed. Right. So the, all, all of these examples we have here are connected actually to outbreaks of tuberculosis. Isn't that and, the, and the assumption is, by the way, that the vampire will go for family members first. Mm. Wow, wow. Talk about, you know, mm. you know, setting family members against each other. You know, your, <laughs> your, your enemies will be members of your own household. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the notion of, you know, maybe this is for a later point, but the, the historical kind of arrival of, hold on, I'm about to order a beer, so I'm going to be a vampire myself here. Right. Another cone head. Yeah, another cone head here, too. Still working on so Tom and I have ordered cone heads. That's right. And I have a purple monkey yeah. dishwater porter. Hey, I've heard those are good. That's really. It good. looks very good. That is really Maybe good. That'll be Doesn't next. look like dishwater at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Doesn't taste like it either. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, but my my quick question, maybe you're going to get to this, but the whole notion of a vampire, the kind of whole character going on there, um, what would the what would the characteristics of a vampire be? I'm talking, you know, kind of early on and held, I guess, continuous. And kind of why did that notion arrive? Uh, arise? Because um, it, it is a distinct thing. It's, we're not talking about sort of just demonic or, or someone possessed, but a particular kind of quality to someone yeah. or something that... Uh, yeah, someone who is coming back from the dead to feed in some sense on living people, people. and draw them to their deaths as well, right. frequently. Right. Interesting. And in the form of, like I said, consumption, tuberculosis, whatever. Okay, so where does it come from and what were the early characteristics of it? Well, 
most likely these these ideas uh, come, of course, as you would expect from Central Europe. Of course. But the question is, how do they get transferred here? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three main theories. One of them is simply German or Central European immigrants. Yeah. Uh, one of them is Hessian mercenaries. Oh, you can't trust have, the Hessians. That may have stuck around, because you'll notice 1793, we're not yeah. that far after the revolution. Right. The other might be sailors. Interestingly enough, the Connecticut Current in June 1784 made a reference to vampire beliefs being brought over by... German sailors. Huh. Now, okay. related to all of this history coming here, how does, for example, the Romanian Moldovan tradition, because that's always been tied to, mm-hmm. you know, um, Val the Impaler, right. um, who is always, of course, I, I know Bram Stoker kind of yeah. kind of went wild with that, but historically, was that related at all, or would it come out of different traditions? Well, actually, it goes back to to some extent, Germany, East Prussia, but also the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Hmm. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire extends down into those eras, areas. Hmm. So we're talking so about people what, with Bela Lugosi accents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you, act, when you actually... All right, so how did the, where did it come from, from the Eastern European or Germanic yeah. side? The earliest things that we see in, in German tradition is something called the Nachserer. Which is um, uh, literally means afterlife in German, um, sort of undead kind of thing. Uh, and th- these are kind of interesting because what w- we know about them largely because of archaeology. Hmm. So the Nachzerer were believed to be people who, this is something that happened to you after death. It was not something that was contagious or could spread in any way. Hmm. But if you were, for example, the first plague victim in an area, in an area, in an outbreak, you would, you could become an ox sailor. Mm. And what would happen is, um, you you would more or less sort of wake up in some sense in the grave, hmm. and you would begin consuming first your shroud, hmm. then you would begin eating like your fingers and things like that then maybe other bodies near you, and then you would emerge and attack the living. Yeah, okay. what a pleasant thought. And now, <laughs> the you, you know when you find these things, because when you are excavating a cemetery, <laughs> if there's a suspicion that someone was an achzerer, you would find something in their mouth between their teeth, like a brick or something like that. Mm. Because the idea is if you jam a brick between the jaws they're not going to be able to eat their shroud, and if they can't eat their shroud, they don't proceed on to other things. You know, a couple of things that kind of strike me as, as fascinating about this, this is almost sort of like uh, the zombie thing as well. You know, so like, you know, what we, we've, with the sophistication of, you know, Count Dracula and sort of this, this what's become of the vampire story, uh, we've recovered the zombie thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the zombie thing in, in its sort of origin is right. resembles yeah. more like what you just described. Well, like and like I said, Bram Stoker completely changes yeah. Yeah. The, the entire vampire thing. You'll notice I haven't talked about sucking people's blood yet. Right, yeah. right. I mean, it sort of comes in, but not really. Right. Okay. So mm. you, you you find cemeteries where there are the where 
there are the bricks or even just sometimes coins between the teeth to prevent the jaws from closing so you can't eat, eat it. Now, by the way, where did these ideas come from? Two things they, they think were at work here. First of all, you know, in digging a grave, you might come across an existing grave where they would notice that the shroud was deteriorated around the mouth. Uh-huh. And that could simply be a function, without going into all the details of decay, right, right. Um, uh, under certain circumstances, blood and other things can be forced into orifices like the mouth, which will carry with them a great deal of bacteria, right. which will then consume, eat, consume right. the shroud, and they assume right. that it's the dead person that's doing it. Right, right. There are also sounds that are frequently associated with these. Um, uh, and that could, that could, yeah, it is creepy, but that could be gases released by decomposition, right. things like right. that. What, what, to what degree, again, this is speaking out of historical ignorance, but uh, to what degree, for example, were embalming practices Speaking of the, sort of the, yeah, the, the mood, we've got some background music <laughs> here, kind some, of the, apropos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like for embalming practices. Virtually none. Because, for example, okay. would okay. it be have been impossible to have put someone in the grave that was still alive? Oh, yeah. And, and there are instances that we have found, that's one of the theories behind vampires, too. But yeah. there are instances with, that we found where there have been in, in archaeologists have found coffins that have scratches on the inside of them. And I'm being, I'm using naturalism, right? So well, it that, does. That's, <laughs> what, that's you know, that kind of came to, to, into my mind as you were saying that. But even before, you know, uh, you know, when we think about, um, you know, parts of the world where the supernatural is very uh, consciously present. Yeah. That was the case for our ancestors. Right. You know, we're right. talking about here is just a couple hundred years ago. Right? Yeah. And actually, interestingly enough, you can trace this. I'm going to move it forward now. We're going to put it into the Enlightenment. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, and it probably radicalizes in the Enlightenment. The, the, the knocks there, we see them. Actually, there's an example that, that has been found in Venice, but there are a number of them in Germany, 1679, maybe earlier. As you move into the 18th century, the early Enlightenment years... Um, actually moving actually pretty close to the high enlightenment, you see a burst of interest in vampires in East Prussia in 1721. Hmm. These are the first vampire crazes, really. Hmm. And then between 1725 and 1734 in the Habsburg Empire. Hmm. And this is where you're beginning to pull in some of those Moldova and other kinds That's of things right. there. Right. Yeah. There's some really interesting concrete examples of this. Um, there's a man named Petar Blagojevich, who died in 1725. After he died in his village, there were nine deaths, unexplained deaths of sudden illness in eight days. People would come, get ill, have pains in their sides, things like that, and they'd be dead within 24 hours. Nine deaths in eight days. His wife claimed that he came to her and asked her for his shoes which she refused to give him because she didn't want him wandering around. She ended up leaving town and moving to another village to get away from him. So they called a guy by the name of Frombald, who was um, an imperial officer, who came there and you know to just you know act as, as sort of a magistrate in the area. And he didn't really want to buy into the superstition. But when they dug up Blagojevich they found something that they had not expected. His body was ruddy. It looked plump and full and all of this kind of thing. It seemed like his hair and nail and beard had grown. 
Um, and there was, I believe in his case, there was actually what looked like blood in his mouth. Now, now we're at the stage of the show where you can imagine yourself at a campfire in the woods with your little kids. <laughs> That's right. So, what, Freaking so, them out right now. So what ended up happening is, you know, he didn't want to go there. He's an Enlightenment figure. He doesn't yeah. really want to go there. But the villagers absolutely insisted that they put a stake through his heart and they burn his body. And not only his body, but everyone who had died of the disease since he died. Hmm. Him and all of his victims. Hmm. And... Um, Frombold sent in his letter said, "Look, you know, I didn't really want them to do this. I thought that this was inappropriate, desecrating the graves and all that kind of thing, but I couldn't stop them." Yeah, yeah. Now, my suspicion is, if I were Frombold, that's what I would have written, but I'd have been glad <laughs> they did it. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. But it gets worse. Mm. Uh, the following year, in 1726, a guy <laughs> by the name of Arno Pavel died. He had been a soldier in the Ottoman Empire. He claimed he had encountered a vampire in the Ottoman Empire that had... The, 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 the vampires were associated with Turks. Okay, um, well, that makes sense. Yeah. So in any, <laughs> so in any now event... We're starting yeah, now, now we're getting rational here. He, he, had, he had claimed that he had encountered a vampire there, that the vampire chased him, but that he had protected himself by eating dirt from the vampire's grave and anointing himself with the vampire's blood. He said this would protect him mm. from it. Well, Pavel died in 1726, and within one month, there were four people who died under difficult, strange circumstances. He was disinterred. Body is not decayed as, it w as would have been expected. So he was staked and burned with the victims again. Five years later, there was a second outbreak in this village, 17 deaths in three months. One of them was a woman named Melitza, who said that she had, that, that a vampire had killed some sheep and she had eaten the sheep. Mm. She was one of the people who died. And then a woman named Stana, who said that she had anointed herself with vampire blood to prevent, protect herself. Uh, both of them died, and then there were 15 other people who, who so died this, as well. So apparently this method of anointing yourself it doesn't work. Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, according to folklore in the area, either eating the, the, the dirt from the grave or eating an animal killed by a vampire or anointing yourself with vampire's blood could turn you into a vampire after death. Ah, okay, so this is like, you mean, you're, you're really making a, a big gamble here. Right. But it would protect you during your life. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, an imperial officer by the name of Glazer came in, and he put in a report on this. Uh, another imperial officer by the name of Slukinger came in, and they decided they were going to exhume all the bodies. The people were insistent on this. So they dug up 40 bodies of everybody who had died within the particular period they were looking at. <coughs> of these 40 bodies, 23 of them were decaying normally. 17 were not. Of the 17, some of them had died before some of the ones that were decayed. Mm -hmm. But again, these are people who are, are looking plump. There was one woman who was thin during her lifetime who was looking, lo looking plumply. <laughs> plump, rosy cheeks, all of this kind of this stuff. In England, that would have been normal. <laughs> so so the, they were, at least 12 of them were ended up being beheaded and burned. 
uh, to make so sure these are the corpses know, beheading the corpse and, and then burning the body. Right. And actually, I forgot to mention this in the case of I think it was Blagojevich, might have been Pavel, when they staked him, he groaned. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, according to the reports. Right. Now I want to. I, I know. I know. So you're a historian, then you just delight in in sort of moving on from case to case. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I, I want to reflect a little bit on this. Okay. J just a quick note: the the Pavel story. These things got ended up getting reported. They were, the the reports were published, and then they were reprinted in uh, Dutch, French, and English, including the uh, London Journal, and then in 1732, the following year. Actually, no, same year, 1732, in May, um, shortly after these things had been reported, you have the first reference to vampires drinking blood. Okay. Drinking blood, specifically. Yeah. Okay. Now, I need to say at the outset here that there are, we now know enough about the process of decay and things like that, that there are, there are natural explanations for what we're seeing here, the phenomenon we're seeing. Okay. I need to note that. But... Even these Enlightenment physicians, they'd never encountered anything like this. This has really got to spook these guys. Sure. And this is going to kick off the really major vampire craze in Europe, which will then spread to the U.S. Well, you know, my mind races in a couple of directions. Yeah. I don't know about you, Tom, but there's, there's one side of it, one side of my mind that's interested in sort of you know, speculating about sort of alternative naturalist explanations and... Yeah, yeah, the so nature of yeah. human psychology, group psychology, and sort of how these things can kind of sort of sweep people along and they get carried away with things. Then there's the other part of me that says, well, what about the possibility that, you know, we just don't know everything and strange things happen, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean, similarly, I'm going to outpull Charles Taylor in because he kind of is, he's just easy to digest with his categories. But he sort of talks about the way in which prior to the Enlightenment buffered world, and of course we've already spilled into that, so mm -hmm. it, it doesn't fully define Enlightenment um, buffered world. But prior to that, you know, he, he, he uses a term, which I think is a helpful explanation, is the poorest human being, which basically meant that we didn't create a distance between our experience of, of, of the dy spiritual dynamics that are going on within the natural created world. And so, therefore, we're threatened. There are forces that we don't have control over through our reason and our technology. And so these things um, can take on dark and light sides. Mm -hmm. And Christianity tended to play on the white magic, as he would say it, and allow for things to kind of put, you know, uh, help counter the, the black and dark forces that, that, that impacted us. So here we have death. We have aspects of... Um, a cult almost that, uh, that that kind of savor in this imaginary world of death. I'm using his terms, right, right. Um, and so the the kind of the Christian and the white magic help us kind of put keep that stuff in a in a manageable territory, at least protect us maybe in some sense. Um, flip that with the Enlightenment that kind of reduces it all basically, yes, to to naturalistic magic, maybe you know this worldly causation. But I, 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 you know, I think I think there is a point that kind of breaks through all of that, and I think you're hinting at it. Glenn, Glenn is kind of creating the conditions for it. And it's one in which there's a few things going on, but one would be the way in which the meaning world 
um, or Charles Taylor uses the term social imaginary, but he's basically right. just talking about the way in which we understand reality, all of our assumptions, our worldview, if you will. Mm -hmm. The way our worldview kind of engages and interprets these kinds of things. And just to merely reduce it to, to naturalistic explanation misses a whole different level of... It, it, it kind of shaves off still the spiritual dynamic that is going on there. Well, I wonder, I yeah. wonder if the rationalism isn't in some sense a defense. So here we are. Yeah. We're talking about New England, yeah. probably the most rationalist yeah. part of our country. Yeah. If we were talking about the South, if this were Mississippi, yeah. we'd say, ah, those people down those there. People, you know how they, they would put it in a Pat's Blue Ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> we know how they are. But here we are in New England where this stuff... Uh, isn't supposed to ha happen, or it's a part of this benighted past. Yeah. But I think that there's a thin tissue, yeah. and that thin tissue is rationalism. Yeah. It's a way of dissipating the fear and sort of the dread, doing, doing fine. Like cider. Cider. Mm -hmm. So, Tony Cider. Yeah. yeah. And I think actually Lovecraft gets at this in a really interesting way because he was an atheist and still... He's, he was he he did justice to New England because he was from New England. He was right. a Rhode Islander, Providence guy. And when you think about some of the great, you know, sort of ghost stories, you know, and tall tales in in, in our country, they're from this region. Now, not, now, obviously, this is an old part of the country, a part of the country that a lot of people are from. But and and if, if I may add, the weird thing here is that people will associate the ghost stories and the superstition and all of that with the Puritans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the Puritans are actually the source of rationalism as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And here, here's an interesting thing, and I don't know yet how to articulate it, so bear with me. But let's just say that on one level of explanation, the ordinary level of explanation, you can talk about natural issues. You mm -hmm. can reduce it to naturalistic explanation. Right. That still does not address the second level of inference and interpretation that's going on on a different level. And that is the fact that people are encountering these things and experiencing these things in peculiar meaning ways. And that meaning world itself is not something that is merely reducible to the natural. That is, it's an interpretive level, but it is something that people are genuinely experiencing. Right. And so when people interpret, understand these realities, but they interpret them in these distinct ways, is there not a spiritual dimension sure. that is going on? And at that point, is there not also, as Christians, something going on between the, that which is holy and that which is, which is demonic? And so in the, in, in the imaginary meaning level of reality when we move over okay you can have for example i could have my car parked outside and someone could steal it i could interpret it merely as somebody needed a car to go do such and such or also start to enter levels of this person was evil for doing such yeah, and right. you know what i'm saying there starts right. starts to be levels of right. of interpretive meaning that are beyond the mere um, and, and, physical explanation. And, and I, I'm, I'm tracking with you. But yeah. one, one of the things I think, though, that when you when you put it in those terms, is people, again, sort of retreat into the subjective and they say, "Well, the, it's the it's the person who's supplying the meaning. There's no sort of ontological yeah. reality outside the perception or the mm. interpretation." Yeah. So let, let me just sort of finish yeah. this thought. <clears throat> isn't isn't possession both 
possession by God, the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, you know, God's dwelling in us, a spiritual reality. In other words, you don't go to, like, the doctor and have an x-ray and the doctor say, well, that ghostly image over there, that must be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's, so, but we're not saying that the Holy Spirit is a subjective interpretation right. of That's my right. experience. That's right. We're yeah. saying that there's a real thing that can't be measured. But wouldn't that also be true for a demonic presence? Yeah. I think, and I think what it is, 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 is what I'm trying to say is even at a natural, even if we have a natural level of explanation, there is a whole height of reality. Mm-hmm. And this is objective reality that is being related to and inferred. And so there is within this, I would argue, a set of spiritual forces that are part of what it, what we should mean by natural reality that are being attended to in this particular way. I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to use kind of a weird analogy. Okay, here. let's go with the historian's um, analogy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to use a contemporary analogy. Um, what you're dealing with are a bunch of people who are faced with phenomena that they don't understand and are looking for an explanation for it, which fits within their cultural context and their worldview, yeah. which is emphatically supernatural and all of those kinds of things. Okay. In the modern world, consider the issue of race. Yeah. Race has no biological reality. Yeah. It is one of the few things that's described as a social construct that genuinely is. Yeah. So the question is, what reality does race have? Is it, it, it's not a biological reality. It's not even an objective reality. It is a subjective or a cultural reality, which makes it no less real, but real in a very different sense than biological reality would be. A biological reality we can, we can, we can, we can x-ray. Right. We can measure. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about something that we can't measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it fair to say that we're talking about a spiritual reality in a certain sense? That's, that's possible. Uh-huh. Um, but m- my point here is that the vampire craze that comes out of all of this is a social reality. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not there is an objective existence to vampires is irrelevant. Just like there is, I would argue, no objective existence of race, it's irrelevant. It is a social reality. Well, and, and, I, and I follow your reasoning, and I'm, yeah. I'm open to it. Mm-hmm. But I guess the thought that I'm sort of wrestling with right now is, is sort of this, this other, re, other category or this mm-hmm. other sort of way of thinking, which is um, something that can only be apprehended subjectively. In other words, we can't take a picture of it. Right. But it is real objectively. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and those those like as you say, the Holy Spirit, demonic, whatever, all of those things are real. Right, they do exist, and they exist objectively, but not materially. Right. Now, of course, a materialist or an atheist or a secular person would just sort of roll their eyes at you and me right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think though that one of the ways that you can disarm such people is when you demonstrate uh, complete facility with their categories and, and language mm-hmm. and their, their methods of, of analysis. And then you pull a fast one on them in a, in a good sense. And by the way, we have not eliminated 
with all of these approaches that we've just entertained or all this analysis we've just entertained, the possibility that there really is something real out there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I always go right after the mind. Yeah. Because they can't, they can't really deal with the mind. They think they can, but objectively they can't. But no interestingly, you, you, we talk about this, but it, it is the relation of the socially constructed um, and, and our experiences of it as, as, as realities and, and the spiritual. Mm-hmm. I, mean, right. I mean, I think that is. I think that is what we actually encounter, even in, in most of our issues with the socially constructed. Um, it is. It, it becomes a spiritual playing field between poor. It's a, you know, to use uh, uh, Taylor, we're dealing with poor selves again. We're dealing with people. What has happened is the buffers have broken down in the postmodern world, and so all of a sudden, certain trigger terms um, affect us like demons do and don't. And so the question is: is is there something more than merely the, the epiphenomena of that postmodernity is what we call socially constructed, or is there more going on objectively in terms of the spiritual, in terms of the spiritual, the Holy Spirit, and the demonic in relation to right. to what we interpret as the socially constructed? My hunch is there is a lot more objective spiritual reality going on. And and that's what this kind of connects to. Well, and, think, and that that's a really intriguing idea. As a historian, yeah. I look at this and say that that is intriguing. It's interesting, but I don't know how you demonstrate it. Well, that's the problem. Of course, demonstration <laughs> would, would would require an ability to control theological intent, right, sort of yeah. bring about things that. Mm. Yeah, but but I can't control Glenn. I mean, mm. I can say that I can identify Glenn's location based on where his body is I sitting. I presume there's another mind. And I can, I can, yeah, well, that's it. That's right. I can't even think <laughs> that there's another mind there. But, um, yeah. but, you know, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, now, now, getting to this whole matter of social construction um, and sort of in an attempt to get beyond that, uh, sort of, because I understand that, you know, the term social construction can be reconciled with some pretty significant truths that are objective. But in terms of how it operates or how it's used pop in a popular sense, right. what, what people mean when they say social, something is socially constructed is that it's arbitrary and it's fake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if, if we were to think about it in mm-hmm. a different way, what we could say is, is that what we really ought to do is we ought to look at uh, different social constructions and see what they have in common. Right. Kind of like what C.S. Lewis does, you know, in Mere Christianity when he looks at the Tao and he demonstrates that, okay, there are moral norms that are, you know, effectively or at least for... Pretty darn close to pretty universal. Pretty close to universal, yeah. that's right. So I'm reading Joseph Campbell's book right now, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And, of course, what he's doing is he's taking the reader through a sort of a, a panoply of myths from around the world, everything from the Mo- uh, the Maori and you know New Zealand to the uh, you know to European myths, you know the Greeks and, mm-hmm. and Norse and so forth, down into Africa. We were just all over the place. And what and what he's able to demonstrate is that there are certain things that ought, these myths have in common, and there are just a number of things, themes that just recur and recur and recur. Uh, and and what what do you what do you do with that? Well, at, w- at one level you say, uh, I think, wow, this isn't arbitrary. In other words, these different cultures in these different places 
the things that they have in common, we can either understand this sort of genealogically, the genealogy of ideas, in other words, ideas sort of moving from place to place, or we could say that human beings are situated in a reality that's just there and impresses itself upon you wherever you are, whether you encounter somebody else in it from another culture or not. In other words, there's something real out there. That's right. And, and these different cultures are working with the categories and the, the images that they have to make sense of it. But isn't it amazing that you have Sky Father, Earth Mother almost everywhere? Yeah. Almost Corn everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and it's just and one thing after down. another. And um, even virgin birth, you know, That's right. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. back in the day when they thought that kind of explained away Christianity, it was yeah. like, no, actually it doesn't. <laughs> That's right. No, what it actually does is it validates it. <laughs> it's the other way around. That's right. It was actually confirmatory. Right, yeah, right. The corn, yeah, the corn king Mithra, you know, Mithra. Yeah, that's right, all that stuff. Yeah. But, but well, and, and there are problems with the way that's presented, but yeah. Jesus Smith is a, let's do that in another week. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I think, though, the thing I'm getting at here is let's, let's look at the myth of the vampire. Mm-hmm or the story of the vampire or the belief in that. By the way, I live across the street from a house that was built while these these things were going on. It was built mm-hmm. in 1752. So, you know, in terms of the town that I live in, there were people probably in the town when it was founded who believed in vampires. Mm-hmm. And I'm from and I'm from Virginia, so we have yeah. we, 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 we have vampires in our neighborhood. Well, and, and the first, first witch trial in Connecticut was from my church. Wow. Okay, so now this is the church that Jonathan Edwards studied in. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> no, and no. a witch trial was there. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, it was but actually conducted in Hartford, but it was from someone from our church. From your church. Was yeah. someone accused or was the point? Accused. Oh, wow. You had a member of your church accused of witchcraft. Well, a member of the community, which was meant a member of the Everybody church. Everybody the church, so, right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but, but, yeah. So, you know, the, the spiritual dynamics of this are interesting. But I'm not, like I said, you know, as a historian, I'm not entirely sure how to deal with them. Sure, sure. It, it, it poses some real problems. Because, for example, if we're dealing with outbreaks of tuberculosis, yeah. do we want to say, do we really want to make an argument that they're demonic caused by someone who has just died? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I have a hard time making that step. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, this reminds me of the UFO thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm thinking of. There are a number of UFO sightings that are frauds. Then there are a number of UFO sightings that are just mistakes. You know, hot, you know, weather balloons, whatever. Then there are those that are just like, wow. How do you really explain explain this one? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like the boy who cried wolf kind of thing. We assume that every time the boy cries wolf, that he's making it up. Until the wolf comes, mm-hmm. and I and I wonder about this with with this yeah. something like this. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's fair, and of course, as a modern, I think my 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 you know my dispositions would be towards natural explanation for most of this. Um, and it's not because I'm a naturalistic reductionist. It's just that you know those that a lot of these kind of things we have been able to kind of create. A kind of plausible explanation for and get rid of kind of any kind of uh, you know extraordinary explanation for you know for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. I have one last. Yeah. All right. I'm good. Okay. I'm good. All right.
And so, um, you know, so my tendencies would be in that direction. On the other hand, um, not to kind of throw the whole history of, of the past under the bus, um, I, I would like to say that, um, that even with possibly um, mistaken, and, and well, let's put it this way, let's just say something was a purely natural episode that was interpreted within a different web of meaning, um, that, that still um, is not enough to explain why um, certain kinds of meanings took hold of that natural explanation. And, and, and I, think, I think theology is always addressing this issue. I mean, we have the natural order that is, is sac you know, can, kind of attests to um, the created order and its transcendent vision. Thank you. Okay. Um, and then, and then you also have sort of the generic created level at which you explain something in terms of its functions, cause and effects, and sort of its, its natural functions. Um, but then you have this whole web of cultural meaning. Um, and the whole web of cultural meaning is something that, on the one hand, is not merely natural, nor is it purely theological, but it, it tends to have something that sustains cultural and historical life for human beings. And it's in that world in which different levels of objective and subjective and interpretive meaning take place. And then it is a question then of the way in which spirituality relates to it. So even if it has a, a natural cause, the interpretive level on the social, it can actually be caught up in a web of spiritual conflict between the natural and the supernatural. Right. And, and yeah. to take it one step further, where I would go yeah. as I look at this, because there, there are good, solid, naturalistic explanations for most of the phenomena we've talked about here. Where I would go in terms of looking for the demonic is in that area of how is it understood and what happens. Desecrating a body. Yeah whether through beheading, burning, or simple disruption, desecrating a body is, well, it is a desecration. It is, it is something that has spiritual significance that we frequently, I think, in our modern world ignore because we've got this fact-value distinction that says that the body and the spirit are two separate things. And the place where I would look for the demonic in this is not in the putative vampire, but rather in the response to it. Or maybe the way the demonic has used the sort of the, the, the myth of the vampire. Right. Right. And it's at, that, it's at that level at which, I mean, we can actually say that, for example, naturalism doesn't have the capacity to address this because it's stuck on efficient causality that is merely interested in the way in which things get rolling, what, what power makes things big. Theology and, and, and Christian interpretation starts to move towards not merely you know, what brings things into being and governs them, but also the level of formative and final causality, that which actually shapes culture, nature, to be a culture, and then that which directs it towards certain significant and meaningful ends, purposes. And it's at this level, I think, which I think is objective, but objective on, on more than merely a reductive chemical, but on a, on a level of social meaning, 
that I, I think this stuff is starting to to take on a different significance. And I don't know if that makes sense, but but I mean, I think that's where I mean, as a theologian, I would be addressing these issues. So now we're entering in a realm of it's not that it's not it, it can't have a certain uh, you know kind of chemical physical explanation that but once it moves up into the level of social significance and meaningful import for the human that is when we're dealing with a different set of forces and those forces are what we're wrestling with between a theologically sound interpretation of these and way of dealing with them and then the kind of way in which we characterize them and i think vampire is a way these people are trying to characterize that level of meaning mm -hmm. yeah and going back to something chris said you know, we're dealing with enlightenment-trained physicians here yeah. who are looking at these bodies and saying, I don't know what I'm seeing. Yeah. You know, I've got this body that looks fresh as a daisy yeah. that's been in the ground for longer than some of these others that are decaying. I've got washed. what looks like blood <laughs> around the mouth. I've got all of these different things. I don't know what I'm really seeing. I don't approve of desecrating the corpse, but I'm going to let him do it just in case. It shows that that fragility of this reductive way of looking at the world in the face of things that seem inexplicable. Yeah. Well, what is it about the, the, the forces that this person doesn't have a call? I mean, we get back to... to you know, the kind of, well, I understand what came through the, the nominalist world was a very similar set of forces we can't manage. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the rational can't. And so, I mean, even scripturally, what is that which undermines the ordered way of, that things are? It's the demonic. And, right. and the super, you know, the supernatural set of forces. I don't want to be, you know, kind of crass in, that, in my use of supernatural. But this, this set of things chaotic set of things and forces. I mean, think of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I mean, Frankenstein's a great, great figure here. He's created that which is not controllable. You know, even if we brought this, you know, this, this into being in some sense, um, here, here's something that, you know, crushes the little girl, kills the, you know, and so we can't control this thing, and this thing's taken on larger than life. And what is this set of forces that have been unleashed? I remember Carl Barth used to always talking about, he said, you know, we oftentimes talk about the de demonic in all these other ways, but what happens when we create a political system that unleashes this set of forces like Nazism that are, I mean, it is social, it's socially meaningful, it's not reductive to the natural. You can you mm -hmm. explain it on the natural level, sure. but there is a set of things going on here that captivate the imagination and the soul of a people that shape and orient them in a particular way. And I, I wouldn't say that something was so dissimilar in, in these episodes, that you have sort of a natural phenomenon going on tied to a meaning world that was bringing people into a conflict spiritually between, you know, that which is, you know, truth and that which isn't. Um, and they were expressing it the way in which everything had been formed for them to express it in. Now, as I as I think about this, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, as I as I hear you, Tom, yeah. uh, you're, you're addressing the, the the problem in a in a very sort of systematic and yeah. way that we'd exp we'd, we we pay you the big money. That's for right. It. <laughs> I'm a systematic theologian, <laughs> and I'm just I'm just kind of speculating right now. No, no, but but yeah. that's great. I mean, it's yeah. good. And 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 Glenn, you're you're approaching this as an historian <laughs> who's trying to understand everything within sort of the frame. The historical frame, Historic which, causality, yeah. yeah, which 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 
it sort of is biased toward the phenomena. Right, because as a historian, I can only, th this is one of the differences between the historian and the theologian. As a historian, I am always looking for the rational explanation, how this yeah. makes sense in its historical context and all that sort of thing. I don't have access to the mind of God. So now, now here's, here's the pastoral. Yeah. Okay, so we've got the, the systematic the theologian here. We've got the historian. And uh, now, as I think about this as, as a pastor, you know, Which the thing... probably I'm, the most interesting. Well, the, the, the thing I'm thinking about is, is kind of at, it's operating at a couple of levels. One is, uh, you know, of course, as a pastor, you're concerned about the welfare of your people, you know, and their spiritual uh, well-being, uh, you know, you know in, the, in the fullest sense. But... I'm also thinking about uh, the agency. Mm -hmm. So sometimes uh, when we talk about, say, the demonic, we, we think about it almost in this way that we... I'm all set. Are we ready for the check? Sure. Yeah. Can you divide them? Yeah, evenly. Uh, well, I've, I've got the... Uh, yeah, I've just, yeah, just what we ordered. That'd be great. So, for example, uh, you know, Tom has addressed the problem in terms of almost... Um, intelligible categories or just categories of thought. So the demonic is equated with um, sort of, you know, realities that are almost impersonal. But if we're thinking about this in terms of agency, then we've got another possibility. I think sometimes we, let's think, just think about the demonic. I think that we think about the demonic uh, sometimes in a, too, in a way that's too orderly, if you know what I mean. Thank you. So, uh, and when we think about the, the word pandemonium, and a pandemonium means the devils everywhere. All the demons, yeah. Yep, all the demons. So, but, but, but what comes to mind is sort of like a cacophony, just a mm -hmm. sort of conflict. So, now I know that the, the Lord said, you know, if a, if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. But does that mean that it, particular demo demons don't have agency, that they're just sitting around all day waiting for orders, that they have no s wills of their own. Mm. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah. So let's say, let's just have a little mental experiment here. Let's say I'm Wormwood. I just want to have a little fun. I'm looking to have some fun at the expense of some people. Perhaps this uh, this whole idea of the vampire is kind of fun to work with. Maybe I'll I'll actually give it some some basis and some some agent. You know, there's the, yeah. I, maybe I'm working through this idea or through this this yeah. social we, this social construct. Okay, to work on that level, we know from scripture that demons can cause diseases, right? So, however that works, whatever the mechanism is. Uh, what you're suggesting is these outbreaks of tuberculosis were um, demonically um, I'm uh, just potentially demonically influenced specifically to cause mischief and promote this kind of vampire notion. Or uh, I, there's another possibility. If I'm just sort of a, uh, a demon who just is looking for a little fun mm -hmm. and I'm maybe wanting to damn some souls in the process... And there's an outbreak of tuberculosis. And I swoop in and I start to uh, 
play around with people and their perceptions and mm. play around with with the story, maybe even supplying some, some, some details, maybe adding to the legend. In other words, mm. th there's nothing that I've, just, I've, th that I've just said that precludes the historic, right, sure. that precludes the, 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 uh, the physical and the rational or even the categorical. Yeah. Uh, wh what we're dealing with is, 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 a, is a, an agent. Now, if, if demons don't have agency, I don't know why we, you know, we're, then we're just talking about like a, a force like gravity or That's something. Right. <laughs> then we're just talking about epiphenomena. Right. And I, and I do think there's a lot of explanation that can happen on that level. Um, and I think that's what we, we sometimes do deal with when, when certain conditions are right. You do create the epiphenomena for things like postmodern and tri triggering, right? Um, but that doesn't mean the demonic is not bound up with all that. I think that is, it's very much tied to, you set the conditions up for the possibility for this to become a field of that kind of play. I mean, if you think about creation and the created order, I mean, what do you have being? The ordering of being, days, nights, certain family structures, and everything else. And what does the demonic do? But it's always constantly trying to, to, to tear that down because that becomes the meaning framework for which truth and and and, uh, and uh, true human flourishing is 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 kind of oriented towards. So what do you get? You start tearing down those things. You, you're ushering in the demonic. I mean, there's no, there there is no there's no disconnection between the tearing down of the created order or the blurring of its significant meaning and the demonic. And that gets back to the desecration issue. Desecration, and it gets back to the way in which, I mean, Scripture talks about any idea that is not brought into conformity to Christ. Arguments themselves. Um, so, so the meaning level... And the interpretive level, and the the actual, and then of course the practical, the practical level that's that's tied to that are all bound up with um, either you're orienting yourself towards the truthful enactment of creaturely existence or the demonic. That's it. That's the. Those are the really only polarities you have. You don't have a neutral space called the secular. You you have a field of play. And so even the naturalist who can merely reduce this stuff to natural explanation has not dealt with the full reality picture because it is spiritually infused and it's either going to be infused by that which has properly enacted itself in accord with the way the created order is meant to be in which it's moving or that which is in conflict with it and therefore has ushered in a set of um, delusions and, and spiritual forces that have the capacity to delude and, and lead people into interpretive situations that, that bring them into this kind of, um, you know, what we would call paranormal, <laughs> you know. I mean, and I think oftentimes we think if we can reduce something to a naturalistic explanation, we've explained the spirituality way so we don't have to deal with the conflict. And I, I just don't think it is. I think that actually naturalism and the Enlightenment just obfuscate the spiritual forces that are going on and cloak them, and they almost are a worse delusion than, than the vampire crane. Yeah, and I'll, I'll second that yeah. in that one of the basic problems that we get is what the notion of explanation means. Mm -hmm. So science explains things, quote-unquote, which means it tells you how things happen. Yeah. This causes this, which causes this. Yeah. That's different from asking the question, why? Yeah. 
does yeah, it happen? Exactly. The the yeah. scientists will say, I know why it happens. It happens because of this chemical reaction or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But that's not a why. It's not the the metaphysical why. It's not right. well, and, and, why. and even at the level of the material and the efficient, I don't think that we know as much as we really <laughs> ought to know before we're uh, mm-hmm. sort of getting sort of exhaustive explanations. And so the the pretense that I'm able to definitively say this is what's going on when I don't even know what I don't know. Right. You know, yeah. and, that, and I think that's the biggest problem with with scientism, frankly, yeah. is, is, is that it's not dealing with uh, the possibility that it doesn't know things. And it, it, it seems to me the most reasonable yeah. thing in the world yeah. to or say to, you just don't know everything. Or to take it a step further, they don't even accept the possibility that there's an area that they can't know about yeah, using right. scientific method. Right. Yeah. And yet they, they tend to be kind of flood towards the, the most you know extreme kind of um, for me um, the most extreme forms of kind of uh, strange occult phenomena. I mean that was something I had a book called the uh, it was Oxford Press published it was talking about disenchantment. Um, it was talking about how basically. With the Enlightenment came the most radical forms of enchanted universe um, within the, the intelligentsia and the, well, the elite. Kind of like you know, like uh, when you cast a demon out and you leave it on, it leaves the space unoccupied. Something else rushes in. Seven, sevenfold. Well, the the prime example of that in literature is the National Institute for Coordinated Experimentation. <laughs> yeah, nice in uh, that right. hideous strength. Right, yeah. Right. That's right. That's well, right. you know, with that nice thought, <laughs> we've arrived at, at the point where we really ought to wrap things up here. Anything you want to add, Tom? No, so? I'm sure we cut Glenn off. I, I see a file there. Oh, so yeah, we, we he just barely this. got into his lecture notes. We have to, we have to get back <laughs> into this. So we, we were only dealt with vampires. We didn't get to witches. That's right. What was the other category? We didn't werewolves. Get werewolves. werewolves. We didn't get to werewolves. Yeah. Yeah. So well, we can, and we actually, sh- we didn't even get into the real major vampire craze oh, yet in man. terms of the history. I think, I think so. Glenn's next time we can repeat that before, but I, we have another topic for Yeah, well, we got yeah. at least we got we got a, we yeah, got a we'll, show on witches and then another one on and werewolves. We'll we'll, we'll probably get back to some of this stuff later. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, this is one of the things that we deal with with the, with the theology podcast. The problem is is people give us all these great suggestions, but our minds are already so full of things we want to talk about already. Uh, that uh, I don't know if we'll ever get around to being able to do justice to the excellent suggestions that people make. No, but but maybe maybe we ought to. Maybe we just ought to say enough of this self-indulgence. <laughs> Let's answer questions that people have asked us. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, I don't have anything to add. This has been a lot of fun, and I, I am looking forward to getting back to the conversation. I, I'd like to I'd like to look into were, uh, werewolves and witches, and uh, think about those but maybe uh, another day. Anyway, well, thanks for listening to the Theology Pugcast. We appreciate your support. You can go to, to iTunes and give us a rating, uh, you know, one of those five-star ratings, you know. <laughs> those are great. And uh, we, also, uh, do, we also have a, uh, a Facebook page, the Theology Pugcast, and almost every day, almost every day, there's a new, there's a new uh, like, there's a new... Uh, follower and, and those that, that. Have, re- have reached out with funds, you know, oh, thank yeah. you so much. This kind of helps alleviate pressures and may help build this to a 
to uh, more than just the, the, what we're doing now. So. Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. And again, contrary to popular belief, we are not actually using the funds that are pledged for our rounds. <laughs> so, Although we you know. would be open to that, so anyone who desires to buy yeah. us a few rounds, we would be more than happy. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.